Okay, it's nice to uh, be back with you. I think perhaps this is the fourth year I preached here in August. Uh, my normal uh, summer rhythms are I do a two-week block at Emory University at the Candler School of Theology. And invariably, I end up preaching in some churches in Atlanta, in Georgia. So it's great to be back with you. Temperatures are pretty hot for an Irishman. A hot summer's day in Ireland, as most of you know, is normally 70 Fahrenheit. So this is a little bit exuberant, uh, to put it mildly, and even having a robe on as well. I want to wrestle, and I mean wrestle, with a topic today that I've struggled with all my life. And I know every single person in this building, if we were honest, has also struggled with this topic. Um, I'm ordained now 36 years. And I often comment, not nastily, maybe a little bit cheekily, but sometimes churches can be the most dishonest places on planet Earth. I'm going to read a psalm to you, and then I want us together to wrestle and struggle with what I'm attempting to say. So give me a moment. It's a well-known psalm. It's Psalm 91. In fact, when I'm back home in Ireland, if I'm sitting at my desk in my study, it sits to my left-hand side. It's my favorite psalm. Let me read it to you. The writer says, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High abides under the shadow of the Almighty. He will say to the Lord, you are my refuge, my stronghold, my God, in whom I put my trust. He shall deliver you from the snare of the hunter and from the deadly pestilence. He shall cover you with his pinions, and you shall find refuge under his wings. His faithfulness shall be a shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of any terror by night, nor of the arrow that fires by day, of the plague that stalks in the darkness. Nor of the sickness that lays waste at midday, a thousand shall fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Your eyes have only to behold to see the reward of the wicked, because you've made the Lord your refuge and the most high your habitation. There shall no evil happen to you, neither shall any plague come near your dwelling, for his angels will look after you to keep you in all your ways. They will bury you in their hands, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You'll tread on a lamb, an adder, trample a young lamb and a serpent under your feet. Because he's bound to me in love, therefore will I deliver him. I will protect him because he knows my name. He shall call upon me, I will answer him, I will be with him in trouble, will rescue him, bring him honor. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. I'm a child of conflict, even though today I am an adult. I lived through an internal 30-year war between Catholics and Protestants in that northern part of the island of Ireland. I spent my life now still in Ireland, in the United States, and in the Middle East. I work extensively in the Israeli-Palestinian theater. I've spent time working in South Africa. I've seen my first share of suffering. 
And I've often commented, honestly, if I ever walk away from Christian faith, it isn't going to be over creation versus evolution. Or is the Bible the word of God, or did Jesus rise from the dead? I think if I ever do, and I hope I don't, but it'll be over the mystery and the riddle of suffering. I've read around it theologically, psychologically, philosophically. And in many ways, I find most of my life, maybe you're different, but most of my life I find I'm trusting God in the dark. A couple of years ago, I was speaking at... uh, the Duke University, and before doing the chapel R for the students, I was racing through a bookstore with my wife Joyce, who's over here to my left-hand side, and I noticed a title of a book that really jumped out at me. Maybe it was a title actually written by an Anglican bishop who's currently in the House of Lords in London, and the title was The Beauty and the Horror. And in chapter 14, which I have before me, he tells a story of Albert Camus, the French existentialist. It's out of the book, The Plague. You may or may not have read it, but the story is very simple. The town is in the grip of a daily, deadly plague. And an agnostic doctor is working night and day to alleviate the suffering. Present in the room is a Catholic priest, Father Penlox, And they meet over the bedside of this dying child. All night, they wait, wrestling with the suffering of this child. And the priest turns to the medical doctor and says, Why did you speak to me there with such anger, doctor? I too find this unbearable to watch. The doctor replies that he can feel only outrage. And revolt at what they are experiencing. The priest responds, I understand it is outrageous because it is beyond us. But perhaps we should love what we cannot understand. The doctor shakes his head. He says, no, Father. I have a different notion of love. And to the day I die, I shall refuse to love this creation in which children are tortured. A shadow of profound distress passes over the priest's face. He says, our doctor, I've just understood what is meant by God's grace. And being honest, I mean, the logical conclusion, if we can be honest in church, the logical conclusion of the doctor's remark is that if a world in which children suffer, so much is the only one available, then in many ways, it might have been better if there had been no world. A conclusion that many people have been drawn to over the years. Uh, Dr. Tony Campolo, a name you may or may not know, Uh, Tony's well into his 80s now. He's a professor of sociology, well retired. He's been with me a couple of times in Belfast when I was in parish ministry. But Tony Campolo said, you know, when he was at university, invariably students would have come to him and knocked the door and 
told him their woes or their excitements. Many coming telling why I had decided to leave the church. And he said, on one occasion, one young man came through the door and said, Dr. Gampolo, I'm finished with the church and with God. And Gambolo said it wasn't for the uh, usual reasons of uh, creation versus evolution. Uh, is the Bible the word of God? Does God exist? And this young man tells a story of his seven-year-old sister who takes cancer. And he says for months as a family, we watched her young body wither up in excruciating pain. The young man said, I, I found I could live with the silence of God, despite all our prayers. He said, what I couldn't live with was the unrealistic expectations of Christians. He said, eventually, the little girl died. And at the funeral service, he remembered so many Christians saying, we know only joy because she has gone home to be with Jesus. And in many ways, he said, that did it for me. But after the funeral, this young man went into his church, into the balcony to think and to pray. And while he was sitting there, he heard a door creak at the back. And his father, who was the pastor of the church, come walking down the aisle and kneeling at the communion rail, he began to sob. The sobbing turned into absolutely uncontrollable wailing. And he looked up at the stained glass window of Jesus above the communion table and shook his fist. Eventually, the pastor left the church. And the young man sat and said, this has done it for me. And he said to Tony Campolo, I found I could live with the silence of God, as I said earlier. What I couldn't live with was the falseness and the pretense that there was no pain. When in reality, we were struggling with those questions of doubt and difficulty. Uh, Philip Yancey, the writer who wrote a book here in the U.S. called Disappointment with God, asked three questions. Is God silent? Is God hidden? Is God unfair? And so together we read Psalm 91. You know the imagery as well as I do. It's typical poetic imagery of the Hebrew Bible. The images of an eagle, perhaps. I don't know, a hen. But in any case, it's a picture of a bird that senses danger and very instinctively and protectively flips out its wings to shelter the younger birds. It senses a predator. We've grown up with this in our Christian tradition. God will cover you with his feathers under his wings you will find refuge. Generations in this church and in many churches have cherished that imagery. But still, maybe it's just me, but I imagine it's some of you as well. A question kind of pokes at me or prods at me. How true is that sheltering image 
of God. I needn't fear anything at all. In the United States, as you know much better than I, you had 400 mass shootings this year. So we don't fear God will always protect us. What do the families of those 400 incidents actually say? What the kids in Syria or Central Africa say today, God's wings will always protect us. We know in reality that's not true. Kit Boyler, a name you probably know from Duke University, at 35 years of age. She was unexpectedly diagnosed with stage 4 cancer, age 35. And in her viral New York Times op-ed, she writes about the irony of being an expert in health, wealth, and happiness. She's written a book called Everything happens for a reason and other lies I've loved. I don't think everything happens for a reason. And why did Kate call her book that? Because some Christian said to her husband, hearing of Kate's stage four cancer diagnosis, oh, it's happening for a reason. And he rightly said, can you tell me why my 35-year-old beautiful wife and our kids may not have a mother in several years? I don't think there is a reason. I think many times, if we're honest, we spend a lot of our lives trusting God in the dark. So how do we wrestle with these questions? What are we meant to do? In October 23rd, 1993, coming 30 years, this October, I was in my Mansur parsonage in Belfast. When I got a call that a bomb had gone off pretty near my parish, as well as pastoring that church, I also had a part-time chaplaincy at the Royal Victoria Hospital in Belfast. I raced to the Shankill Road. An IRA bomber had gone in, planted a bomb, killed nine innocent civilians. I then went to the Matter Hospital to hold in my arms a person who, five years earlier, I had co-officiated at his wedding, his wife, Sharon, at 29 years of age, was dead. Her father, Desmond, was dead. They were both faithful, practicing Christians. That night, I sat at the bedside of a woman, 38 years of age, called Wilma Mickey. She got the all clear of her cancer on the Friday and decided to celebrate by going out shopping on the Saturday and was caught in this bomb out of mega head injuries from shrapnel. I stood with a neurosurgeon and he said to me, Gary, she'll be dead in four to five hours. I remember going out to that hospital corridor to her mommy, 
her daddy, her husband, her 14-year-old and 12-year-old sons. I can still tell you today, almost 30 years later, the color of the suit I had on that day, the color of my clerical collar. I remember the very shoes I was wearing and the color of the paint in the hospital corridor. I could tell you what shirt I had on yesterday. I couldn't tell you what shirt I had on on Friday. So I guess I have some form of uh, secondary trauma, as I guess many clergy who spend time in conflicted zones have. Where were those sheltering wings of God? And I think if we're honest, what troubles us is not so much the sheer fact that as Christians we suffer along with everyone else. Uh, I was mentioning there to uh, Jenny earlier, I came to Christian faith through, through reading C.S. Lewis, uh, a Belfast-born person like myself. He had a profound influence on me. I finally had the willingness to wrestle with difficult, unanswerable questions. And C.S. Lewis said this, If the children of God were always saved from floods like believing Noah and his family, if every time someone pointed a gun at a Christian, it jammed, if we really had a money-back guarantee against hatred, disease, and terrorism, you wouldn't have to worry about church growth. Churches would be filled for secondary reasons. Uh, People like many churches in the West, America included, uh, don't want a church. They want an insurance policy. It's not a church. Like the struggles within the United States at the moment, I did a TED Talk last year in Atlanta with Christian Demers, who's written this book called Jesus and John Wayne. How many people in the United States are remaking Jesus in the image of John Wayne. They don't want Jesus. They want a macho man that they assume represents Jesus. You have enough people in the United States becoming Christians through a prosperity gospel because they want to get rich, they want to get happy. I mean, what would really happen to people's integrity if becoming a person of faith gives you a blanket protection against poverty, accidents, the wages of sin? But how do we wrestle with these almost extravagant on believable texts. No evil shall befall you. Yeah, help me understand Paul, Lord, Stephen, the 250,000 Christians who will die for their faith this year on planet Earth. Where are those protecting wings then? Really, what Psalm 91 does, It describes one mood of your faith and my faith. I'm assuming the person that wrote this psalm had been protected by God in some dangerous incident and they are celebrating. But I mean, read Psalm 85. It ends up with a kind of where is God's story. 
So Psalms are reflecting moods, reflecting circumstances. You need other Psalms to fill in the real reality of life. Philip Yancey, when he was writing the book Disappointment with God, went to Chicago to interview a person called Douglas. Uh, Douglas was a psychologist and his wife was a medical doctor. And six months earlier, Douglas's wife had discovered a lump on her breast. And it was terminal. And in a coffee house in South Chicago, Philip Yancey said to Douglas, Douglas, if any person has a right to be angry and disappointed with God, as his book was called, it's you. And Douglas looked into Philip Yancey's eyes and said this, Philip, life's unfair, but God isn't. Don't confuse life with God. Life's unfair, but God isn't. Don't confuse life with God. So how do we interpret this as we pull this together? When Psalm 91 says, No evil shall befall us. I think the real conclusion is when we bring in some of the poetry and the metaphor, etc., etc., and the witness, of course, of the rest of Scripture, the conclusion is that no final evil will befall us. Because all of us in this church building today were, were like birds who scuttled onto the wings of our parents. And the force of evil... I know, even though most of you I don't know, has beaten every single person in this church. Imagine being under a tree with falling tree limbs, rain, hail, thunder, lightning, beating on those wings of God. But when it's finished, and evil has done its worst, those wings of God are going to be bloodied, battered, broken, and hanging at some very obscure angles. And let's be honest, in the truth of life, all of us, we get roughed up in the commotion. But let me assure you of this. You're going to be all right. Because those wings never folded. Because they were spread out to be wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. And when all those feathers eventually quit flying and you look out, you will see you've been in the only place on planet Earth that hasn't been leveled. Have you been bumped in life? Yes. Have I? Yes. Have I been bruised? Yes. Have I been hurt? Yes. Have you been hurt? Yes. Sometimes badly hurt. But the only other option was to, to break out from under the embrace of God. And if you hadn't stayed under those wings, you never would have heard the groans of a person who loved you. And those wings stayed out, no matter what came pouring in, those wings stayed steady. So God is the one who protects you from the final evil. Now and in the life to come, the life in which God will finally fold his wings. So he will cover you with his feathers. 
And under his wings you will find refuge. It's not a simple truth, but it is the truth. Let me just highlight this with a a final story that I heard a significant number of years ago. A person called John Todd. Name none of you know. I still don't even know what denomination he was, but it struck me. 19th century clergy person. Six years old, both his parents died. And a kind-hearted aunt raised him until he left home to study for the Christian ministry. Later, this aunt became seriously ill, and in distress, she wrote Todd a letter asking the question that we, we all ask. I ask it. Will death be the end of everything, or can we hope for something beyond? And here, condensed from the autobiography of John Todd, is a letter he sent. It's brief. It's now 35 years since I, as a boy of six, was left alone in the world. You sent me word you would give me a home, be a kind mother to me. I've never forgotten the day I made the long journey to your house. I can still recall my disappointment when you sent someone else to fetch me. I remember my tears and anxiety as I perched high on your on the, on the horse, clinging tight to your friend, riding off to the new home. A night began to fall before we finished the journey, and I became lonely, afraid. Uh, do you think, sir, we'll, we'll get there before my aunt is in bed? Will she go to bed before I arrive? Oh, no, he said. She'll stay up. And when we come out of these woods, you'll see her candle shining in the window, Eventually, we got into the clearing, and there was the candle. You were waiting. You put your arms around me, a bewildered little boy. You had a fire burning in the heart, a hot supper waiting. You took me to my new room, helped me say my prayers. You sat beside me until I fell asleep. And then he finished with these two sentences. And they apply to every person in this building. Someday, God will send for you to take you to a new home. Don't fear the summons. Don't fear the strange journey. Amen.